Welcome to the Cold Steel Podcast, hosted by Amir Farouk and myself, Chad Ball. We consider it an absolute privilege to bring you guests from around the world who are truly experts in their craft. Our mission is to offer you a combination of not only masterclasses on clinical surgery topics, but also insights into achieving personal growth, productivity, and fulfillment as both a surgeon and perhaps more importantly, as a human. A big welcome to all the new residents starting this week on their journeys to become physicians and surgeons. To help you on your journey, we caught up with Dr. Helen Pham. Dr. Pham is a clinical associate lecturer at the University of Sydney and is a current HPV fellow at the University of Calgary. Dr. Pham shared with us some of the differences in training paradigms for surgical programs between Canada and Australia, and also gave us her invaluable advice for new trainees. We would love to hear your tips. What do you wish you knew when you were starting out as a PGY1? Email us at podcast.cgs at gmail.com or tweet at us at CanJSurge. Be sure to check out Dr. Pham's amazing notes and list of uh, textbooks and resources that are included in the show notes. Can you tell us where you're from and how you ended up uh, in Canada at this point and sort of what, what your training uh, route or voyage has looked like? Um, no, thank you so much for having me on. Um, it's been really great here. Um, well, as you can see from how I speak, I'm not from Canada. I'm from Australia. Um, I did my training um, in Australia. Um, so I graduated from an undergraduate um, medical school, for, which goes for five years. And then I started um, as a doctor in 2013. Um, and the way I guess it is different because I did two in Australia, I did two years of, of internship. So which is a hospital doctor um, before applying for a surgical program. And then I did a one year of what we call an SRMO, which is an off program uh, training. And then I did four years of training for surgery. Um, and this was all really at, in Sydney um, in um and I've been sent to different hospitals within Sydney and probably at the border of, of, of New South Wales and Queensland. And then on my, I sat my exam in, in my fellowship exam in, June, in um, around May 2019. Um, and then the year after that, 2020, I was very fortunate to be given the opportunity to be um, a staff specialist um, general surgeon in the hospital where I trained at, in Westmead Hospital. Um, as well as as a, a the position of what we which they don't have here, which is called the clinical superintendent of surgery, um, which I can talk more about later. But it it that gave me the ability to be a bit more independent. And then I was very fortunate to actually have, know a surgeon who came here, who was a very close mentor of mine, uh, Dr. Stephen Craig, um, and he was at Foothills for an endocrine fellowship and, and he, um, you know, and I've always wanted to do HBB and he knew that and he, he saw the volume here and he saw the, the, the staff support and, and the types of cases that we get here. And I was very keen to go here. So I applied um, for this job and I was very fortunate to give the opportunity to come here for a year. You obviously do a lot more generalist type training and practice before you actually enter your subsequent subspecialty or specialty pathway. How do you think that that has affected the way that you practice perhaps now as a, you know, as a surgeon and, and as an HPB surgeon? Do you think that those years were valuable or how do you feel about those years where you were more of a generalist before you entered your subspecialty? Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I mean, I agree. It's it's very different, and and I am biased because that's the only training program that I went through and I knew about, and it's similar to what the UK training program is like, and actually some other other countries as well. I actually think um, I I myself think that was probably the best way to be, and there are pros and cons for it. Um, the way in Australia and I guess the UK works is that the the hospital you when you when you graduate for as a medical student to a doctor, um, you don't just you know subspecialize into any program. You do cardiology, geriatrics, which I did. I did um, you know emergency um, geriatrics, cardiology. I did um, rehab terms and. 
for two years, you do get an idea of the overall holistic management of the patient, but also you get to work with a lot of people that you probably wouldn't work with if you go straight into a surgical program. You, I have good relationships with uh, geriatric doctors and um, as well as the rehab doctors and the cardiology doctors, the respiratory doctors as well. Um, and I think it also gives you a bit more of clinical maturity. I think, um, you know, you're not going from a medical school to another kind of um, structured learning program into a specialized. You're going to be a a helpful and contributor, a con- um, helpful doctor to the um, and a helpful member of society. You're employed by the hospital. You're not employed by a college. You're not employed by an overriding, um, you know, board. You're employed by the hospital. So the hospital sees you as a a help as a staff member as someone that actually should contribute someone so i think that extra maturity that extra um kind of step in i think really helped and it helps because most of our trainees have to do usually another year on top of those two years because of how difficult it is to get into surgery in australia um you know every year hundreds of people apply for the surgical program and they probably only take about 60 a year um, and there's a lot of people who have a very qualified and a very you know far down their postgraduate years and and still find it difficult to get in because of the how competitive it is and i think that does give a lot of clinical maturity and and most of the residents that come onto surgical programs now can have already know how to do appendixes they already know how to do gallbladders they they know how to work up you know, very simple, or they know how to work up basic surgical pathology before they get onto surgical programs. So I think that is helpful. Um, I think it is long and it, it can be extremely um, frustrating, but that is part and parcel with how the structure of, in Australia, how that's different from Canada and actually North America as well. That's really, really interesting, Helen. So, you know, one of the things I think that all of us struggle with in Canada and the U.S. to some degree as well, and, you know, I think it's not uh, specific to any individual, but I certainly had to stop and think about it. And I, I bet you Amir would probably tell you the same thing is the the flipping of your switch in your brain from I'm a, I'm a, I'm a learner, I'm in school, which, you know, as you know, goes on for all of us around the world for so many years to this is a job. Uh, I show up every morning, you know, like one of our recent guests says, uh, wake up, get up, suit up, show up and do it with a smile. There, there's a professionalism job component to looking after patients, as well as receiving all this amazing environmental education, of course. Um, but it sounds like you guys really have that trigger, that switch relatively on compared to, to us, where really that I think, you know, and Amir, uh, feel free to uh, disagree, but I I think for us, that trigger really happens at the end of residency when you start a fellowship and you say to yourself, oh boy, like this is a whole different level of responsibility and accountability and um, it just feels fundamentally different. What what is your sense of of that kind of really important um, trigger uh, a time point? Yeah, that, that time point has to happen early. I mean, the way that it the way that we have to think about it, like you said, is is you are now getting a salary, you're getting paid, you're not going to work. And the difference is, you know, from a medical student to a doctor, you reach a point in your training where your skills, your your knowledge, everything you do reflects the effort that you put in. Not, not what's handed to you, the opportunities that you you sought, you, you know, try and seek throughout your, your training per se, but the education really is, is up to you and, and you're, you have to be your own advocate and you have to shape your own ability to be a doctor. You have to shape the way that you want to be to make the most out of it. And I think, you know, it is no longer a structured curriculum when you get into, into surgery. And, the, and I think that's, I think that trigger has to happen very early, um, as early as you can be, to be honest, because, you know, at the end of the day, th- that's why in Australia, when, when you become a, a, a intern, PGY1, PGY2, you know, you are very well looked after, you're supervised in a way, you're supervised, but, you know, you're already, you have to make decisions, you have to prescribe, you have to, you know, work up these patients, and you're, you're basically completely accountable to every action um, that you make. Uh, and, and that, 
culture in Australia, I think, is very different from other places. I mean, I've only been in foothills, but from what I've spoken to with other doctors around Canada and as well as North America, there is a different culture. And um, I mean, I don't want to go into it too much, but I mean, the hidden curriculum is what I is what in Australia very it's a bigger deal and a lot of papers are out there about the hidden curriculum and how how much how badly it can affect you know juniors and how much it can affect the overall culture i think i agree what what you know we have to bring surgery into the 21st century it's not in the olden days anymore but i would caution that we shouldn't with all the all the stuff that we used to um that we would you know, we, we, that we would risk pushing the pendulum to the other way. The values such as resilience, hard work, flexibility, and the, to know that you're not just here as a career, but you're here as a service to the community, that is no less important than what it was 150 years ago. And that should not be, you know, kind of, that shouldn't be ignored either. Um, uh, I don't know if you guys agree with that, but uh, I mean, in Australia, that that's more of the overall culture, and and I think that's what I, you know, I was I was taught during my training um, early on. Uh, yeah, I mean, I was going to echo a lot of things that you and, and Dr. Ball had said. I mean, I was just, we actually have a really wonderful medical student on our service here at uh, St. Paul's right now, who uh, was a pharmacist before starting. Uh, medical school and and there just is a different sort of maturity right like there part of part of what is funny about residency here and again I can only really comment on on residency here is you know like you go out of undergrad you go into uh, medical school and you're in residency and many of us have never actually held any other kind of you know full-time professional job or professional or otherwise right so there's there's some aspects of what we do that really is, is, is a job as both of you had said and is a service. And of, of course, I'm not, this is not to say that like, you know, that being a doctor is quite like having another job, but there are some aspects of it. Like that you just, you have to understand that you, no matter how you're feeling or how kind of tired you are, or whatever the case might be, you have to show up with a certain level of, of excellence. And Helen, you're like uh, in some ways really well qualified to think about these differences in training and perhaps even how you might instill that into residents. And we're going to, I think, get into that a little later in the show, but I understand you were a program director for general surgery in, in Australia. What was that experience like? And what were some of the principles that you had for residents coming into the program? Yeah, I mean, actually, it was really interesting because in Australia, it, it really reflects the difference in organizational structure. And and my job was actually called the superintendent of surgery for my network. And it really is different from you don't have anything like that here in Canada, in North America, I think. And what that is, is I was really the organizational manager um, or the manager role of junior surgical residents from a training perspective, but also from an administrative duties perspective, such as accreditation, teaching, research, and uh, like leave requests. Um, it is not the same as the college CAGS equivalent, but and there is a separate supervisor of training, which I worked very closely with. And the additional role that I had was actually, which I actually enjoyed surprisingly, but was I was the surgical representation for the in meetings with board members, directors of nursing. And I sat in multiple committees with procedural surgical governance workforce meetings. And basically I was employed by the hospital, not by the college. And the difficulty of navigating the politics from that and it, it was was interesting. My, my about 30 to 40% of my job was actually training um, related. And my favorite part of the job was actually about residents, training residents, not just the ones that, because what we have is what we call unaccredited residents, residents off the program, but ones on the program as well. And I love that part of my job because I, you know, knew them very well. I knew what their CVs looked like. I knew what their, you know, what terms they were doing I knew what research they've done what how they were standing for their fellowship exam what future applications for fellowships are so I had a very very close role with them and I had to report back to their director of, of, of um, or the district director of surgery 
Um, and because of that, I actually continued on to um, be involved with the overall interviews and resume interviews for the training program, which is actually very interesting because it's nationwide. To get on surgery in Australia, it's it's really you apply to a central kind of board, um, which is the RACS or Royal Australian College of Surgeons and the General Surgeons Australia. And they then will tell you which hospitals you go to. So it's completely centralised and standardised. And the same people, and I found that that does make it a lot more transparent. You know, you're not getting employed based on what you like, how well you talk, how, you know, who you know. You're being employed onto the program based on your merits. And that really is the only kind of, that, that seems to be the only way that I know how it works. And there are pros and cons for that. Um, I then have gone on to finish a master of public health and I'm finishing my master's of health leadership because I think I, my favourite part of that job of looking after is, is really kind of seeing the really good residents that go, that try really hard. They're doing surgery for the right reasons. They, they understand and they know expectations early. They don't expect, you know, I think residents that go into surgery thinking that, you know, it will be hard to get in and then it will be easier as the, as the years go on. I think that's extremely naive. Um, I think the, it really by having such a difficult system to get into surgery would really unfortunately do weed out a lot of the ones that, that probably aren't doing surgery for the right reasons, but also may not you know, have a, a completely um, naive view of what surgery is. And, and it's better to know early that surgery is not for you. It's better to, to um, kind of go into another specialty. I think that's the thing that Australia, you know, and being part of the recruitment process, you know, that we afford, we're able to give that opportunity for junior doctors to be able to make that decision early. Um, I don't know what it's like, and I, what it's like here, but I, I can I see there's quite a lot of unhappy. I mean, there's some there's a lot of residents that that find out halfway through training that it's difficult, that it's that it's long, and and there's a lot that there's a lot you sacrifice, and there's no, and I think like you said, Amir, this is not a nine to five job. This is not just a job that you go, you turn up at nine, you go home at five, and that's it. And I think the reality of that um, needs to be um, put in the, the the recruitment process, and it needs to be you know, emphasised very early because that is probably the reason why most people leave surgery: um, the burnout, the you know all that stuff about of not having the real expectations of what surgery really is, and that you know that you're really sacrificing a lot of yourself to be able to to provide a surgical service, to provide a job. Um, and pr provide something for patients. It's an interesting thing to drill down on, right, Helen, in terms of your sort of the timing of your exposure to reality. And, and I know that sounds like a harsh statement, and I don't really mean it to be. It's my, my word-finding difficulties. But, um, you know, if you look at Canadian medical school programs, for example, there's less and less exposure to surgery. There's also less and less responsibility um, during those medical student rotations on surgical services. And I, I think you can probably uh, maybe comment on that, whether you think I'm right or wrong compared to Australia, for example, in your experience this year. But that's the second part of it. And the third part of it is, even when we look at other residency programs, let's pick emergency medicine, for example, at most places. Many places, they're not doing any surgical rotations to their residency. Family practice, no surgical rotations to their mm -hmm. residency which begs the question, how do you know how we work? How do you know how to refer patients, which is a primary job in that, in that, in that domain? Um, that it just seems like we're increasingly siloed and increasingly delayed in terms of exposure to reality across this country. What, what is your sense of that and, and how does it work in Australia? Yeah, I, I, I do agree. I think there is a, um, you are siloed and, and in Australia, like I said, that, People who want to do, for instance, cardiology or infectious disease or neurology, they actually have to do surgical programs in their first two years. You have to do a surgical program for three months. You have to do 
an acute care rotation such as ICU anesthetics or ED for three months. Um, and that is for every single person that goes through internship in Australia. And it's non-negotiable. And that's the way that the regulation is. Once you finish your first year, you then stop becoming a provisional doctor and then you become a real doctor. You still get paid, but it really is a it's it's regulated very well and you won't pass. Um, and that's the difference. There is a stricter amount of requirements that need to be met. And even in the surgical program, it's very structured, very heavily regulated. You are to do six months of this. You have to pass this. You have to get the adequate amount of numbers for this to be able to move on to your next term. And I think that goes, and I have friends in, in physician training and I have colleagues that have finished physician training and they have to go undergo the same overall scrutiny by an overall board. But, you know, I think we have, and it just reflects that you do have to be held accountable for what your training is and how your co and the colleges should be held accountable for who they train and what doctors that they, I guess, push out to to look after people in the community. Um, and I think that's probably really helped. And I and I know that the residents here do do a small term in MTU. They do a small term in geriatrics. So they do a small term in anesthetics. I don't know if that. I think five years is a very short period of time to do surgery and and to do that during your surgical term. I think it really has, well, you know, it works for some people, but I think it really it depends on the person how much you get out of it. And you really have to work really hard to be able to have the same amount of, um, the same amount of surgical um, um, knowledge and, and ability to be able to meet the requirements that's, that's expected from other places. Yeah. I mean, the, the only flip side, and I'm sure, I'm sure you can comment, is that I have a number of Australian friends, uh, particularly from my time doing my master's in Boston, and uh, they, you know, it, it becomes quite demoralizing or depressing sometimes for them when they, for example, try to get into a, a surgical training specialty and they, they can't or keep, keep getting moved around to different places. But, uh, you know, uh, there's no there's no perfect system of course and I couldn't agree with you more with respect to five years is such a short period of time I mean this I'm, I'm coming to the end here of my own fellowship and I just it's it is this very short amount of time to to be to become a surgeon so you know like it really does it does go by so fast and you, you really have to make the time count uh, so, uh, you know, that part of it is absolutely true. You know, in your role as clinical superintendent, you must have had a number of residents come through with a variety of different backgrounds and motivations and, and, and struggles and challenges. What were some of the things that you would tell people who are starting uh, out in their training program? And was there any, what would you do if there was people that you found that were having trouble uh, after beginning their, their surgical training? You know, I myself found it was in a transition from, from being, I guess, a junior doctor into surgical training. You know, it is not an easy one. And I think um, with these, and I have had juniors come to me about a various amounts and different levels of residents come to me about what they've had problems with, whether it's technical, whether it's clinical, whether it's a communication problem or whether it's a research problem. And I think what I would tell them, um, I mean, as their senior, I would tell them about the realities and, and also, you know, how would I would go through with it, with dealing with it. I guess, you know, if you're doing, I mean, I love surgery. It's it, for me, it's, you know, I think about it all the time. I want to always do surgery. And, and for people who, and I, I think it's the same with you, Amir and Dr. Boy, but, you know, going through this, there's a lot of self-doubt. There's a lot of kind of bad days, good days, um, long days. And I would tell them to have at least, so colleagues, it's the people that matters, you know, colleagues that they trust, that they can debrief with. Um, they can have, and I would tell them to have a, like a mentor, um, not someone who is, like a, like a surgeon like so not someone who is you know that they can have coffee with all the time and hang out but someone who they look up to from a surgeon point of view and I I say that to all my junior residents find a surgeon in the hospital that you look up to that you want to be when you grow up 
what do they do well? Are they technically good? Are they good with patients? Are their research good? Like, why would you look after them and and work towards that as a goal? Um, and you know, I think having you know the same people, like the same the people that goes through the same thing to talk to about this stuff is helpful. Um, have writing things down, having like a goal for things to accomplish by the end of the year, I find always helps. Whether and like I said before, I think we have we're very different. We do six month terms at a time. So for instance, here if I you know residence training, I did for for, for four years, I did eight terms only. Um, so you know you you ha- you have a good professional relationship with the team that you're with. You know in the six months what you want to have, you know what you want to finish by. So if I did you know, head and neck or endocrine as my term, I would know that by the end of the term, I would want to be able to do this operation independently. I would be able to, you know, com- present these patients. I would finish this project. Um, so I think having a goal um, is helpful to be able to remove yourself from the overall feeling that you're, you're kind of lost or you're, you know, struggling with a whole career program. I think having short-term goals, having long-term goals, and then having people to talk to um, and writing things down in a logbook, um, I think those are the things that I found help the most. And then I would follow up with these juniors as well. And, and you know, most of the times when they come to me, I follow up with them about three months later to see how they're going, what have they improved on, what they've, if any of their culture has changed or any of their environment has changed. I mean, the reality is there is a, a small percentage of people that do leave surgery um and i think that shouldn't be discouraged i think you know i would if if they're doing it for the right reasons if it's because of a variety of things such as the the workload or the technical i think that should be also encouraged and to be supported into another training program if that's the case and um and unfortunately we have had people like that but i think the earlier the better no, those are all great comments, Helen, and that's a that's a really good sort of ten or thirty thousand foot view of of this topic. I, I I think we want to drill down here, if it's okay with you. You know, in the preface for this is that I was uh, I was lucky enough to be part of an authorship group about five or six years ago that wrote a piece in the Canadian Journal of Surgery, Surgery about important things they don't teach you in medical school, um, and a lot of that was transitioning into residency, treating job showing up like those sorts of you would think bread and butter common sense things but it was interesting to actually put it down on paper so for a lot of our trainee listeners in particular I was hoping that you could um, uh, give us insight into you know with your retrospectoscope what these folks have in their toolbox like the actual nuts and bolts of of their their new exciting job as a as a intern or pgy1 resident from a from not only a, um, a perspective point of view, as you've outlined nicely, but in terms of the actual nuts and bolts and mechanics of it, uh, what will their day look like? What should their day look like? Um, mm. How do they how do they become technically proficient? What's critical? What's not? What's your uh, what's some of your advice? Yeah, and I I think the main thing I I mean yes I attitude is everything. Um, I would, I would recommend most of the, the people going through, and even as a senior or seniors going into fellowship, um, you know, keeping coming early, being prepared, reading up, and I think you know that also reflects attitude that you're not turning up to work just to you're not going to university to to just get people to throw information at you. I think, you know, there is so much to be said for actually reading up on the patient, reading up on the operation. For every operation and every patient you see, you need to read about it. So if you come across a patient um, with a weird pathology, if you someone, someone with a femoral hernia, read about what it is, what, what's the incidence of it, how they present, how would you fix it? And I think you know, do it before, do it after, and then before the operation, read up on the steps, write down the steps. Because I think the biggest thing I wish I knew was that what you see, you may only see once in training. And I, I, I wish I knew that early. Um, and and if you see a McEvity, a high McEvity approach for femoral hernia once, you may not see that again until you're on call as the staff surgeon. Um, so. I would say the most important thing is 
every single case you see, you need to write down. You need to write the steps that you could have improved on um and and write down the steps so because in you so you can compare with other other you know operations that you see other surgeons that do it because the more techniques the better you get the other thing i would want to say is it's all about practice you know i you know i've had a good amount of colleagues that have what we say like they have the talent they can operate it just comes naturally i myself i it was not natural to me i don't think i like I think it wasn't, I didn't have the talent. I didn't have the hands. And I had to make it up and I had to do it by practicing, um, practicing at home, you know, going to the sim lab. And I think that putting the time in to do that, like you really, to be honest, is only, if you don't do it, you only do a disservice to yourself and you do a disservice to the patients that you look after. So I think practicing is the most important thing as well. And then keeping an open mind and don't fall into the surgery only mentality. As a junior, I think for medical students going into to as a resident, you know, skipping steps and then going straight to a CT scan is probably it will not make you a good doctor. You will miss things. And, you know, when you're tired, when you're overworked as a junior, as a senior, the other things that you should have, you should be second nature. It should be reviewing the patient, ABCDEs. You should be doing from the basics, blood work, checking, um, you know, giving fluids, doing bloods if they're septic. You know, it should be ABCDEs, doing blood cultures, urine cultures, chest X-ray. That should be so nature, second nature to you that when you move on as a senior resident and have more responsibilities and have more complexities in your learning and in your and your thinking, those simple stuff should be simple. It should you shouldn't have to think about it. And I think that is the problem. I think I've seen when people struggle and that is the thing that you need to do as a as a junior going in as a medical student going into as a junior resident is you have to not skip steps you have to do everything do it thorough do it once and don't fall into just i don't want to see this patient because it's not a surgical patient i'm just going to scan them and i'll see them later and then the other thing is is be flexible um you know like I, uh, this all goes down to attitude and expectations, but, you know, being flexible, being prepared to move, being prepared to, you know, stay back, uh, you know, it, it is, there are regulations, I believe in North America about doing that, but, you know, I think that can only help um, as well. And then I guess a more of a technical aspect or more of a, of a specific recommendation would be, you know, I wish I did more research as a junior, but I would you know, try and work on it early. The things, if you get through the early things in research, and I think you can, I guess you have more experience in about this, Dr. Ball, but, you know, with research, I would, um, the more you get involved in, the easier it will be as you're a senior to juggle different things and do research at the same time. So doing it early, being able to do the early things like simple statistics, data collecting, doing lit reviews, um, you know, because your, your training will only get busier, doing that early and getting your foot in the door with that early is, is helpful for yourself, but also, you know, for, you know, patients as well. Oh, Helen, as you know, like our, our residents start July 1st, right? Like that's the day when people start their PGY one year. What are some like pro tips that you give people for their first month, their first year as a, as a junior surgical resident? I guess the, the main, th I mean, starting is pretty, pretty um, overwhelming, but I think the main thing is you are in a very supportive environment. Like whether or not you think it or not, it is difficult, but you, you are looked after by a range of, in Australia, it's more of a hierarchy system, but you are looked after by a range of seniors. So be prepared, be, be prepared, come early, ask questions, be proactive, um, and really just respect I guess the respect the the hierarchy in a way, but respect how how the your seniors are going to teach you how what they do, watch, write things down. Um, and I think you know having someone early that they can talk to, um, both from a professional uh, point of view in terms of critical feedback, 
but also, um, you know, not like if there's a colleague and I think the collegiality amongst residents is so important and having someone that you could debrief with, talk about your experience with is also helpful early on. You know, the main thing I would say is this is not, this is not a social gathering. This is a job. So, you know, when you come to work, you know, you treat it, you put, you just do your job. You treat it like a job. You come in professional you speak to patients professionally and i think um you know people these people are coming out of med school these are the first time you've spoken to angry patients the first time you've spoken to patients at all they are not you are their prof, you are a healthcare professional and i think you know being able to keep that line and being able to you know keep be that you know um an overall um to be able to kind of keep that in mind that you're looking after people of the community early, I think it's helpful um, and is extremely important um, um, when you go to work. And I guess the biggest thing I would like to tell them is this is called, this is the long interview. They don't know it, but you're about to enter the interview <laughs> for your job um, for the five years. So you're doing a five-year interview. And every single day and every single thing you do, how you, re how you respond to your failures, how you respond to things that you get wrong, how you receive critical feedback, how you um, deal with patients is you're being assessed for five years. And that will determine where you'll be as a, as a doctor and also where you are as a doctor in your own insight. I love your comment about, you know, just keep writing things down and, you know, really trying to keep track of these things. It's funny how, you know, you'll so suddenly be faced with the same scenario and like, oh, how did so-and-so do this and this and this? I'm curious, Helen, like, so like practically what did this look like? Like, do you have a notebook where you have all these things written down? Um, or like, do you, what, like, do you, is this all handwritten? Do you use anything online? Uh, any of those kind of tools? Like, what are some, are there any sort of quote-unquote productivity tools or anything that you particularly have found helpful like I, I can tell you for for myself i have all my notes uh, saved on evernote and so the nice thing about evernote is that i can actually hand write stuff on the back of my list for example you know if someone gives an impromptu session i can write hand notes on any piece of paper and then take a picture of it and those notes are scannable on evernote so i have all my my notes on operations i can draw pictures and those are all scannable are there any particular like really little tips and tricks that you found to be helpful, particularly for keeping track of uh, educational things or notes to yourself or ways to do operations? What are some things that like you found super helpful? Yeah. Well, you sound like you're, you're much more technically better than I am because I wish I had Evernote. That sounds great. I didn't have that. I had, I had one note, um, which I had different tabs Um it is not, I mean, I used to use Word and I and I had a combination of Word and, and handwritten stuff. I think it depends on what I'm doing. So for all my operative stuff, um, all the steps, I would have handwritten books. I uh, would be, because, you know, they would, we have to keep a very, very strict logbook. Um, so we had to collect all the patient stickers and write things down. But in that logbook, I'd have a page next to it where I would write the operation. And then at the corner, there would always be three things that I could improve on. And I still do that now. I did a, I did a gallbladder a few like weeks ago and I would write down that my port was in the wrong space or, you know, I, you know, probably shouldn't have burned that area. So like I would have it together with my, my logbook for overall trading. I think it, wherever works for you, something that's easy to be able to relook at wherever and you know wherever I go you know as much as I didn't want to do breast surgery I had to write down all of the steps of the breast operation for all three surgeons had a different way of doing it and I would have it handwritten and I'd draw little pictures and and what sutures they used and why they would use that suture was it a tapered point was it a you know was it a, a not a round point so there's different like I would do that written down. I think right now I'm using OneNote for overall knowledge um, and I use usually Excel to keep track of all my research. But, I mean, I wish there was a, I wish I could have time to somehow put together and integrate all in one. And I think, you know, it sounds like, I mean, you've got a much better system than I do, but um, I would, you know, 
is just to be able to something something that is easily accessible that you can reread that you understand i mean this is for you this is not for to show people this is for you to learn and it's something that works for you is is probably the only thing that i would say and i would say that you have to do it in all facets you have to do it for research you have to do it for you know you can do it for knowledge so you know writing down notes on on what you've learned and you know writing notes on acute pancreatitis um, having a folder of guidelines or landmark papers in like a folder somewhere either you can print it out and kill some trees or you can you know add a folder onto your your laptop or your desktop so having there's different facets in your training not just just operating and i think that all needs to be kind of looked after by yourself but also needs to be written down um, and like i said yes i have all three that are kind of separate but they're all work for me and and i think you need to think of it like that uh, clinical technical research um and non-technical as well the one thing i also wanted to pick your brain on was you know it's, it's kind of overwhelming as a junior resident to come in and to have someone say well you should read around cases and then then you're faced with uh, the, the challenge of actually figuring out where do I go to find this information? Where do I go to actually do this reading? What was your approach for reading around cases? Did you have a main textbook that you used to go to? Are you, were you, are you an up-to-date? Like, what were the things that you used to do use as resources for actually reading? And was, for example, did you read a, a textbook cover to cover? What was your approach to actually doing the reading and learning? Yeah, so I agree. I think I got better as I became more senior, for sure. I kind of knew how to hone in on which resources to use. But um, I, no, I wouldn't read it cover to cover. I mean, I think in my memory, my I don't know, my brain is very small. I kind of cannot keep all that information in. I need to have a clinical background and a focus to what I'm reading. So I would have a combination of things and I would have textbooks and I would, I use the textbook for surgery um, or Savistons as well for, um, uh, for that. But I use up to date. I love up to date. Um, and for operative stuff, there was a, there's a lot of stuff out there um, for operative. I found Zollinger's hard to read, but operative stuff really is, to be honest, it's, it's reading, um, I know the operative dictations are helpful, but looking at videos, like I would, you know, YouTube a whole bunch of videos, um, you know, to see. And um, interestingly, even as a, like when I was a staff, I had my own wait list and I had to do a my own wait list. I had to do a hemorrhoid and the hemorrhoids, I wish I probably shouldn't be up on the podcast, but I do a hemorrhoid and, and it was, and with it, and I hadn't, I've done about, you know, about 20 as a trainee um, independently. and I hadn't done one for about three years um and i had and i would just look up you know the videos um look up what the the overall you know there would there would be i forgot the name of it but which i will send a link there is a surgical um textbook written by jameson in australia that he he wrote about the anatomical relevance of every surgery um, so which I found very easy to read, very clinically relevant. And he wrote it like a story. Um, and I would use that as well. Um, and I think in terms of knowledge base, um, like I said, I would use up to date. I would. And as I became more senior, I found that guidelines and papers were much more important, like much more easier to read, much more and evidence-based and much more kind of up-to-date. And a lot of, like I used to use Cameron's as well, and that's, you know, written in 2016. Um, and, you know, a lot of the stuff, especially with the, you know, the thyroid stuff that I was learning and and the neuroendocrine stuff, that the the, the most useful, useful um, uh, guide really was, was papers and guidelines. And... I would send a link to there's a pay, there's an app that I would use which most people I've spoken to residents he uses called the Read QX uh, QXMD um, and that is uh, through the university and I got it through my college but it is extremely valuable app um, that basically has mo a, a customized or personalized um, uh, kind of saving of all of your interest and what the new guidelines, what the landmark series. And uh, for me, it was all pancreas, biliary and stuff. And, you know, that is just on your phone and, and you could easily get papers and, and guidelines that get notified that's come out. 
Um, and I can and send an, uh, a link for that as well. Now that's all really interesting stuff. You, you know, it certainly dates me massively, but just for our younger listeners to put this into perspective, and I'm sure you intuitively know this, that the reality is all this stuff didn't exist except for textbooks when, when a lot of us were coming through. And the truth is you did sit down to your point, Amir, and you memorized Dr. Cameron's textbook, Dr. Sabin's textbook from start to finish, and Dr. Schwartz's textbook. And there was about five. And then you had review articles for sure that were peer-reviewed publications, but the amount of material and the depth of the material and the visual aid, i.e. videos and narrations that's available now, it, it really has equalized the playing field. And, you know, you, for those of us that, that uh, and you guys included, that go around the world and, and are lucky enough to be involved in uh, low-resource countries, through the internet, they obviously have the same access to all of these uh, materials and and their knowledge is is oftentimes incredible and supersedes you know our developed countries by far so we we live in a pretty amazing time and you know Helen to go back to some of the things you said it uh, it, it that uh, uh, makes you a little bit sad you know when when someone does come to an operating room unprepared or doesn't know the basic anatomy attached to the operation you're you're doing because those resources are so available to everyone globally now. You know, one of the, just transition a little bit, one of the things that I got told as a junior resident that, uh, that I was reminiscing about when you were, when you were talking about that, Helen, was that um, I got told by somebody who, who was a couple years ahead of me who said, the day I started, never, ever miss an operation. So whatever rotation you're on as a junior resident, as an intern, whatever it is, you get to the operating room. And if that means you have to get up really early, super duper early, just to be create that availability and that space to be able to get in there and watch and that's what you should do and that was probably the best piece of advice that I got uh, sort of out of the gate obviously that that reality the volume technical proficiency link becomes more and more important as we all get more senior in that education process I'm curious you know particularly in North America where we have quite rigid work hour restrictions or call frequency restrictions, depending if you're in the US or Canada, respectively. How do you generate more cases, do you think, in your in that environment? And and also how does that compare to Australia? So if I'm a if I'm a junior resident or a senior resident, whatever, who wants to do more cases, wants to do more call, wants to pop into other rooms, is that possible in Australia? Is that is that something that's frowned upon or, or looked well upon? What, what's your sense of that landscape and its importance? Yeah, I mean, that's actually interesting because I, I found recently here that, yeah, there is regulations, there is restrictions. You know, you are only allowed to do a finite amount of call. You're only allowed to do a finite amount of, you know, of, of hours in a week. And I, to be honest, have not been trained like that. that that's just not how we are. Um, none of the surgeons or surgical trainees in Australia have that um, mentality at all. And, and you really, it really hones down on, on you, you get what you put in. You get what you put in, really. It, what you learn, it really reflects how the effort you put in. And, and you know, staying back for operations, um, you know, going on the weekends to see transplants and retrievals, that was the norm for, you know, we had a WhatsApp group. And when I was doing um, transplant and that, I think for those few months, our transplant fellow was away or she was pregnant or something and, and we needed extra hands on retrieval. And we had a WhatsApp group of residents, junior residents, interns, senior residents who put their hand up to be available short notice on weekends to go on retrieval because we would fight over it. So if there was like a, we had to take a plane or, or fly to Melbourne or, or fly to Canberra to get an organ, there would be a WhatsApp to say, is anyone free and at 4am? And there would be three people that would put their hand up and then they would then negotiate who would go first. There was never, it never, there's, in fact, in, in the hospital, we it's the norm to be the fourth assistant, the third assistant, because everyone wants to scrub in, everyone wants to see. And, and you know, if you don't, then to be honest, you know, the, the culture back home would be that it's your loss. You, you tough, 
you know, you don't, you, it means that you may not get the numbers and you may not get um, the ability because it's competency-based training. You need to be able to do this amount before you actually pass. You need to be able to do um, appendix you know, independently by the time you're finished as an R2. You need to be a, a gallbladder by the time you're an R4, like independently. And I think that fear of failing, the fear of not moving on the program, which is very strict in Australia, drives a lot of the people to actually, a lot of the residents to actually not work harder, but to be able to um, kind of really seek out you know, these opportunities. And, you know, inherently there is a big difference in Australia and North America really because of the, and I can't really, you know, compare it fairly because of 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 the fact that you know we are pretty overstaffed there as well we have a lot of support if i have three juniors that had covid um i would be able to find three people that would replace them i would if there were people who was away for a month you know the unit would not suffer because i would be able we would be able to find like a a, a resident to be able to fit in so you know the healthcare system in, inherently is very different and it does support juniors in Australia to be able to seek out opportunities outside of their time, you know, to be able to help. And I guess the other thing is that, you know, we have private health, private hospitals in Australia and, you know, you, you get paid for going there on the weekends outside of your work, um, outside of your work hours. And, and, you know, we would be able to go on the weekend. So if we wanted to see a list of sleeve gastrectomies, you just speak to the surgeon and he would come and let you help him with a, a list of them or a list of a whip one on a weekend. We would do that as well. And I think it, the, 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 all the structure, the overall support, the overall health and the, the, the amount of support that the government puts into healthcare is completely different from here and, and over there. And I think as much as I want to tell the juniors in, in the, the residents in, in North America to just work harder, you know, see more, be more, it may be very different. It, you're right. It's easy to say all these things, but if you're limited by structure in some ways, you know, it really, uh, it can create conflict amongst your colleagues. If you're the person trying to do these additional cases, even if it has no relevance to their, uh, the other person's training, but it can create conflict and it can't just be structurally limiting. You know, you use the word culture of surgery or the term culture of surgery there. And I think that's a really interesting thing to to maybe get close to to closing with you know the culture of surgery as you trained in as i trained in as amir uh for the most part trained in i think is certainly under fire and it's it's in this country anyway it's under fire from our universities and from um in in many ways the the changing narrative uh in society as a whole i think a lot of the concern of course, is that, you know, you have about 100 years of, of the way things have been done and has produced really decades and generations of, of well-trained surgeons. And a lot of people feel that that's at risk with this evidence or this, this desire to change the culture. Um, as you guys have both pointed out, we can certainly update it and, and improve it. And I think that's what we need to do and, and all get together on the same page. But what's your sense of, of the culture of surgery now? as compared to historically? And then where do you see the culture of surgery going both in Australia as well as in, in North America? And that may be an unfair question, but I'm curious on your thoughts about it because you're so insightful about so much of this. Yeah, I think it's really complex. Um, and I guess compared, there's a lot of things in the surgical culture. I mean, you hear the horror stories of, of you know, I guess, a lot of the surgeons I've seen, so back in my day, I used to like, you know, carve my own scalpel and, you know, work for 10 days straight. I mean, that stuff, I think, you know, doesn't have, like it's it's changing for the better. So there is a lot more support of doctors. There's a lot more mindfulness, well-being. There's a lot more inclusiveness. And I think that should be encouraged. What shouldn't, I think, like I said before, the caution of pushing it the other way and, and kind of, you know, the, the evolution of surgical training, the evolution of surgeons is not just that, you know, of, of, of making it like, um, you know, it really isn't not a nine to five job. And the risk of pushing it into the culture the other way away from 
what the other extreme is a lot of the things that I still hold very important and I think is very important in a surgeon, such as accountability, the ability to continue to look at your own outcomes, you know, resilience, um, hard work, flexibility, adaptability. I fear that that would be less important and, and more protected by universities, more protected by, by, to be honest, that administrative kind of work, which, which to be honest, in their own agenda is to promote safe working, to promote safe working culture. But I think the hidden curriculum, the, the overall underlying culture of what makes surgery, what makes medicine different from any other specialty in the world, what makes surgery different from, from medicine, um, I think that shouldn't be, that that is no less important, that shouldn't be ignored either. And I think, you know, the way forward would be, you know, there should be more transparency in and accountability of training. I think, um, you know, while there is a lot of support for residents, there should also be support for the institution to be able to, and, and support for patients, like, you know, and the accountability of what who you're training, what caliber of doctor you're training, what caliber of surgeon you're training, and, and to not, and to not, discourage people to take an extra year to not discourage people to stay back an extra year to uh, those type of things used to be seen as bad or or you're a bad resident or you're a bad doctor but I think you know especially with what the restrictions that we spoke about now about the timing and how much you're working and and now with the whole you know work life you know with the whole work-life balance which I actually believe it's actually work-life integration rather than balance um, I think the, the way that it needs to be forward is to be able to continue the old, like to continue the values that that um, that would ultimately make it patient-centered rather than trainee-centered. It's not about the trainee, it's about the patient. And the training education is about their future patients and their present patients and their previous patients and what they learned from them. And I think if we move towards surgical training to look at patients, patient-centered, community-centred rather than just the trainee. I think the overall picture, um, it, I think that's why we wish we were going. But I can't comment. I, I don't know what it's going like. And in Australia, certainly there is a lot of push towards, you know, there's a lot of stuff. For instance, we've got this new operating respect module. We have all these different things that are like pushing us into a, an area which I fear would lose the values that I think would make surgeons surgeons. Yeah, and I just want to echo what you're saying. Like, I, I think to be clear, there's lots of things in surgical culture that need to change. Like, you and I would not have been in surgical training programs a hundred years ago, right? Like, we just would that's we would not have been the people who were accepted into surgical residencies a hundred years ago. So, there's no question in my mind that there's there's lots of things that need to change. Just like we don't treat MIs anymore with morphine. Just the same way, there's there's ways that we can make training programs in in 2022 better. There's a lot of things that we just even haven't begun to scratch the surface in terms of getting the most out of every case. Like, you know, there's anyways. I could go on about this, but I I I, I think there's a lot of things that we could do better. But I couldn't agree with you more that there are some things the values of which should should not change in terms of our commitment to the patient a commitment to, to treating ourselves, not, uh, you know, automatons that show up and just are passive observers of and get what, what someone else teaches us. No, we're, we're people who want to be the best that we can be high performers, just like any athlete or musician or whatever the, the analogy you want to use. But, uh, you know, uh, those things should never change in terms of our pursuit of excellence. So I couldn't, couldn't agree with you more. Helen has been just a fascinating and, and, and wonderful discussion with you this morning. And thank you for taking the time to speak with us. If there was one piece of advice, if you could give yourself as, as a junior resident or a junior doctor, just starting out, having gone through what you've gone through, what would that piece of advice be? Yeah, I mean, I think I would give myself a lot of different advices, but I guess the main main thing I would say is, is, is see, move around more. I think there is a lot to be said about... The fear of moving, and I know there's like, you know, pressures of family and your personal life, but the 
the ability to be able to see different surgeons move around. Now I was in the same hospital for for uh, like the same city, sorry, but I was really kind of trained in the main hospital for nine years. And when I went to another hospital for six months, like I learned so much, I loved it. And now going across the road to a world to Australia, uh, to um, to North America from Australia, I think you know I would say don't be afraid to move like see more and I wish I did I wish I put my hand up to go to different places I wish I you know saw you know more in Queensland in New, like in New Zealand and I would I would say that like to not be afraid of that and 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 not be comfortable I, you want to be challenged and and I wish I you know wasn't scared of being challenged You've been listening to Cold Steel, the official podcast of the Canadian Journal of Surgery. If you like what you've heard, please leave us a review on iTunes. We love to hear your thoughts, comments, and feedback. So send us an email at podcast.cjs at gmail.com or tweet at us at CanJSurge. Thanks again.